Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. For a moment, Sharkin considered trying to take the guy along. Then he decided he couldn't. Unless there was a way to take him by surprise, he would see. The man turned the engine off and opened his door. Shark opened his door, got out, and looked across the dark expanse of the empty parking lot. He was looking for the two headlights of the motorbikes, but there weren't any. I had to take the guy out on the other side, he thought. He would make his move, either hit and run or just run. They headed towards the sign that said Pedestrian Expressway. There was a concrete building with an open doorway and then stairs. As they walked down the whitewashed steps, the man with the Rolex put his hand on Sharky's shoulder and then clapped it on the back of his neck in a fatherly manner. Sharky could feel the cold metal of the watch's wristband. The man said, Are you sure we don't know each other, Sharky? Maybe seen each other? No, man, I'm telling you. I haven't been with you. They walked about halfway through the tunnel when Sharky realized he hadn't told the man his name. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I am Philip Parker, a retired police detective, and joining me today is my baby brother, Alan Parker, who is a retired vice officer. Hey, this is Alan. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us five stars. To show you how grateful we are, we're willing to bribe you by sending out a case of donut. Please follow us on Twitter at ThinBlueLine underscore podcast. Follow us on our Facebook page. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored part three of the Black Echo where Wish and Bosch met and Wish filled Bosch in on the investigative efforts so far. Bosch and Special Agent Rourke butt heads concerning the investigations, but after some professional persuading by Rourke, he and Bosch come to terms to agree to set aside any grudges. While driving around the city, look, trying to locate a witness, Bosch noticed that two IED detectives are following him. Bosch and Wish locate a young street graffiti artist named Sharky, who is a possible witness to Meadows' investigation. Sharky is interviewed by Bosch and gives a brief summary of the events he witnessed concerning Meadows. Bosch and Wish discuss whether to hypnotize Sharky to extract more information. That night, Wish appears at Bosch's home to apologize for what the FBI had put him through. During this episode, we will take a deep dive into part four, Wednesday, May 23rd. As always, there's a prerequisite spoiler alert. It is our intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. Let's open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter.
Bosch and Wish drive to Ventura County to follow up on the FBI's cursory check of the Charlie Company, a prison outreach program owned and operated by Colonel Gordon Scales. During the long drive out to Charlie Company, Bosch laments about Wish's visit the night before. Bosch also asked Wish further investigative questions, like knowing that there were two vaults, why did the burglars rob one vault with a safety deposit box as opposed to the vault that had money just laying about? Bosch further suggests that why the safety box vault was targeted was because it was something more valuable in one of the boxes, like maybe there were some drugs in one of them. Bosch further hypothesizes that the reason the police had the pawn ticket is because Meadows did not give it to the killers or tell them where he had pawned the bracelet. Bosch believes that the killers may have had a person inside law enforcement who had access to the monthly sheets, and that person may have alerted the killers that the bracelet was pawned. Bosch and Wish interview Colonel Scales, who seemed genuine surprise and saddened as Bosch tells Colonel Scales about Meadows' murder. When Bosch promises to tread lightly if he cooperates, Scales locates the file and prepares a list of other Vietnam veterans present at Charlie Company at the same time as Meadows. Upon returning to the federal building, Wish runs Colonel Scales' list and orders mugshots, while Bosch calls St. Louis for basic biographical information. The list produced 15 cons who had served in Vietnam while Meadows was there. But two of those cons stood out, Al Franken and Gene Delgado. They fit Sharky's recollection of a big man and a small man. Bosch tries to interview Sharky but cannot find him because he had disappeared. Wish suggests dinner at her place. While there, Wish asks Bosch about the Dollmaker case, which got him bounced from RHD. Bosch told Wish, the unedited version of the situation that concluded with Bosch shooting an unarmed man who Bosch thought was reaching for a gun. In fact, he was reaching for a toupee. Bosch explains that ID had tracked down a witness that said that she had told Bosch that the decedent wore a toupee. Wish finishes his story by expressing that ID had misjudged the public opinion. She concluded that Bosch was known in the newspaper as a cop who had broke two major cases and a character in a TV show. ID couldn't just take him down without a lot of public scrutiny and embarrassment for the department. After dinner and cleaning the kitchen, Bosch and Wish kiss. Bosch tells Wish that he'd like to stay. She replies she wanted him to stay as well. Sharky worries that Arson and Mojo one night might seriously hurt or kill one of their robbery victims. Sharky thinks to himself that the time to leave Arson and Mojo is approaching. In an attempt to look for further robbery victims, the gang sets themselves up outside an adult bookstore that offers 25-cent all-male peep show. Sharky targets a man driving a Grand Am who flashes a Rolex watch. They agree on a price for sex, and Sharky gets into the Grand Am. While stopped at a red light, the car suddenly lurched forward going through the intersection. Sharky looks back and notices that Arson and Mojo were no longer following the Grand Am. During the drive, this person asks Sharky if he recognized him. Sharky says no. The man asks the question again, but more forcefully. Sharky again tells the guy no, he didn't recognize him. The guy stops the car at the Hollywood Bowl and tells Sharky that he has access to a room at the Bowl, which is a short walk through the tunnel. Sharky thinks about the situation and concludes that either he would attempt to rob the guy or run away. As they walk towards the sign that says Pedestrian Expressway, the man with the Rolex puts his hand on Sharky's shoulder and then clamps it on the back of his neck in a fatherly manner. As they walk in the tunnel, Rolex again asks Sharky, 
Hey, Sharky, you sure you don't recognize me? Moments later, Sharky realized he didn't tell the man his name. We're hitting the street, and we begin this chapter with Harry and Eleanor doing some follow-up concerning the FBI's investigation. And one of the things they were following up was the fact that they were looking to try to follow up with Meadows. And when he stayed at Charlie Company, which was this, this place where prisoners can go to get out of prison for re- rehabilitation. Not to interrupt you, but I got to say, I'm really surprised still that they did not hook up at the end of... <laughs> Chapter three. I'm just what really is disappointed up about with that. you in this hookup? I mean, I'm just saying, I'm a guy. You're a horny I mean, bastard. I, mean, I can't help it. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. <laughs> so, anyway, just wanted to point that out to no, the audience. No. Really surprised because there's some, there's some sexual tension there. And yeah, just kind of surprised. Well, that. okay. Is, is it sexual tension on, is it one way or two way? Do you think it's a one way sexual tension right now or do you think it's two way? I, I can't answer that because of those little Easter eggs things, but because I have the benefit of hindsight. Okay, well, so I, I feel like I'm not going to be partial. Does that make you, sense? You don't think that you can compartmentalize um, and not to give away any Easter, any um, spoilers for the listeners? At, at at this at this point in the story, I think it was one way. Okay, and make sure we. I'm not assuming. I'm assuming it was Bosch because so far. Why do you think it's the guy? Well, because Michael throughout well, no, because throughout this whole throughout the last three chapters, um, uh, Michael gave us an insight of Bosch, and he's been kind of obsessed with his looks and and Eleanor's appearance. I want to use the word obsessed because you know has a negative connotation. You know, he's just very passionate about it. Okay, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) (laughs) But no, yeah, definitely Bosch. Okay. All right. But anyway, go back to sober. We're at Charlie Company. Charlie well, they're en route, they're, they're en route to Charlie, Charlie Company. And what is Charlie Company for the audience? Again, Charlie Company is a way for prisoners to, they have this different programs throughout the country, but more specifically, Charlie Company was started by Colonel Scales, who was himself a Vietnam vet, veteran. And what were some of the prerequisites to get into his program? Well, you had to be, the, the, he didn't, only prerequisite he had is that you were a Vietnam vet. And don't forget, you're missing out. What was it? You, you had to have combat experience too. Okay, I'm, I okay, I didn't, I didn't, I missed that, the combat experience. Okay. That's a big deal because that helped shape his approach to rehabilitating them. You know, it's it's one thing to be in country, but you're a cook. But it's yeah. another thing to go out on patrol and have to engage the enemy. That's a totally different set of anxiety um, and personality to having survived that. So I think that was an important factor that he pointed out. Right, and so this was a way for prisoners to get er- early release. And the great thing about Charlie Company, as it was explained in this chapter, that Charlie Company had a great low recidivism when it comes to the inmates going back out in the after finishing the program, going back out in the world and committing other crimes. I think it was like eighty percent. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was phenomenal. I mean, at the time, again, to get mentioned in a presidential speech was a big deal. Again, so like so he started, they, 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 but in route there, it was a, it was a couple of cool things that I like about the ride there because one, it was a long ride, and sometimes as partners, if you're riding with somebody, you you don't feel the need to talk. I like the fact that 
we don't have to talk. You know, sometimes it's just good to listen to music or get your, get your game face on, think about the uh, strategy of, of, of the uh, interviews that's about to take place. So you don't feel like you have to talk. But Bosch did, and, and while he was in his head speaking, he wondered why Eleanor came the night before. You know, he thought it was a little bit, a little bit more about why she came the night before. Or at least he was hoping to go to what you were saying. <laughs> See, it's not just me. So you're just being backsided about it. Right. But, you know, let me ask you this, though, because mm-hmm. you brought it up. You didn't feel the need to keep the conversation flowing in the car? Because on a certain level, I did. It was really weird when it got super quiet in the car. It's like, does this person hate me? What's going on? Are they going through some shit at home? What's up with it? It just felt weird when it got like super quiet in the car. No, no. You're not. just that guy. You're an asshole anyway. I am. I am an asshole. But no, if for me, if you just sat there and we just, I I have no problem with the this, just the silence of the car or listening to the music. I do not need to talk all but what the if, What if the person was like totally into country music and you were not? Who's driving? Well, see, what if like you have a different set of rules? Like if you say if you're driving, you got the radio or vice versa. What if I'm totally opposite? Well, then you drive. And if you put that up, so if you're, if you're in country music and we're going on a, like, let's just say, I, I don't think Michael actually articulated how long his drive was, but let's say it was about an hour and a half. And right. that, in that hour and a half, if you like, if you reach over to that radio station, I will look at you. Well, again, our first nuance, first time uh, riding together, this would be established. So this, since this is their second time riding together, this should have already been established on the protocols when it comes to the car. <laughs> and again, like last chapter, if you Drivers drive, you control the cockpit. Riders do everything else. So for me to drive in a long ride, I'm going to be able to put my music on the way I want to listen to it. See, you, I, see I don't know if that's professional or personal because you were that way as a kid too. You always tease me. <laughs> everything in my wingspan is in my control. It, that's you right. You play with the little vent over there in your window, but you don't touch the goddamn radio. So <laughs> it's like... I cannot wait to get my license so I don't have to ride with this asshole. Right. But anyway, oh, we yeah, we're on our way to Focus, Charlie focus, Company. focus. Right, focus. I'm focus. All right, we're focus. on our way to Charlie Company. And, and so Bosch peppers Eleanor with a couple of investigative thoughts. And one of the investigative thoughts is like, why did they pick the, the, the box vault opposed to the main vault? And yep. again, you still see, in, in, in my head, Bosch has not really fully embraced her yet as a partner. And his job is to speculate and to look things over with a fresh perspective. And one of the things he thought about was maybe it didn't make sense because the other vault was full of cash. So why did they, why didn't they go with the other vault? You know, because the two vaults were identical and she come up with some great reasons why the other vault was not chosen opposed to the box vault. And again, we don't know yet. We're, we're at the beginning of the investigation. We don't know why. So, What's sticking out to you at this point? Because for me, it was like pointing to there's some inside information here. Like, how do you hit specific boxes? Like, you don't go through all this effort not to hit everything. Right. So, to me, it's telling me there's some inside information. Did you get that same feel? Oh, you, oh, you had to. Thing? And actually, remember, they do talk about that in this chapter because um, that's why they think another reason the vault, excuse me, the box vault was hit because you can use a fake name. And again, we're, we're, well, it's not a spoiler, but in, no, we, uh, 
I don't know. I don't want to make sure I'm not jumping ahead. I know it's dangerous. It's like yeah, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. So let's go with yeah, because I want to err on the side of caution. So, uh, but yeah, you do get a sense of uh, but again, a vault, especially back then, nothing was electronic. Safety deposit boxes were on an index card. You walk in, you after you open up the account, you have, you have an index card and you write your initials on it. That was it, and that's what made safety deposit boxes so great for criminals. I can't tell you the number of times I drilled a box. <laughs> I remember a case where uh, I felt like Geraldo Rivera in um, was that Al Capone's uh, was that the, was that Geraldo thought he was going to get into Al Capone's vault or. Oh, yeah, they had that whole big... Yeah, the whole lead-up to like, it. And then, we got this box. Yeah. We were drilling it live. And you're like, what's in the box? And nothing. I, and uh, again, listeners, when you, work at, when you work federal cases, federal affidavits take forever. <laughs> the, the, you know, a state and local affidavit would probably be maybe three or four pages, but a federal affidavit is probably 20 pages. And just the, ask the, Michael Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and the, the the preamble goes on forever. And again, reason I I give you that is that I I, I got off a little track there is because safety deposit boxes are back then especially are breeding grounds for criminals. And during the ride up to Charlie Company, Bosch actually talks to Elnor about some of the reasons why the safety deposit box was drilled opposed to hitting the vault. And one was drugs. I think uh, Eleanor told him that they had a drug dog come in and actually sniff around and they popped one box because of some drugs. But Bosch was trying to figure because it just did not make sense. And what I like about this chapter too, you don't want to assume the age, the age of our listeners. So um, one of the things I love about this is that he pulled to the gas station to pull a map out from under the seat to get, you know, the location to Charlie Company. And do you remember going places with the old Riley's map or, you know, the folding map to try to get from point A to point B and plot? And again, as a as 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 the the, the passenger, that was your responsibility. You know, you did all the you, you did all the coordinates and, the, the you know, the gas stops and the whole nine yards. See, I was the guy that I was like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to keep going until I get to the point where I force sass somebody. I hated using the map. I just got frustrated <laughs> with it. And I admit that was Neanderthal on my part. Right. I probably shouldn't have done that. Right. But quick, let me ask you a question. Sure. I've read this book and I've listened to the audio. Okay. And after listening to the audio, I, f- I find it's more engaging for me to listen to it as opposed to read. Right. Because I like the narrator's ability to change his voice and yeah. inflections and it provides more context. What do you prefer? I actually do both. I've I've read the book and You go both ways? This is not that type of podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, well, you just said you go both ways. So I'm just wondering I'm your brother, I'm just Listeners, we're learning this together. All right, Phil, go ahead. You go exactly. Both ways. So I, I went both. I go both ways. Uh, and uh, it, again, my listening skills kick in more at, at, at different times than my than my actual reading skills. Is it, it's both. It's both. Okay. Yeah, I just was one. That's one of the first things that stuck out to me at this chapter because as they're engaging in this card ride with the back and forth, I'm hearing the narrator's voice go from Eleanor's to Harry's. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually pretty cool that he can change 
on the fly like that in the moment. I, I have to give props to the narrator's talent for that because I certainly don't have that. I do remember, and I do remember he is a, I, 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 his name eludes me as we do the podcast, but I do recognize and remember that he's ex- extremely popular. He's a popular narrator because of that ability, just like you said. Um, oh, sh- don't say um. Right, right. I'm a, Listeners, uh, we're working on that. We're it's working a, on it's that. It's a task fulfilled to minimize his ums. So as you listen, if you can count oh, how many times oh, you he such, says um, you're such email in with us. Dick. We'll set our over under <laughs> to his ums for the next episode, and we're going to work together as a community to help fill with that. So since we had said that we're very open and we wanted to let the listeners know, uh, one of the things that I, a, a positive feedback, because I think any feedback is positive, that I had the last podcast, I had an abundance of ums. So I am in the process of trying to eliminate those ums so that the actual content would be more pleasurable to you, the listeners. It's funny because in my public speaking class in high school, you got a gig, the point for every time you said um during a speech. So you start out with an A. You know, every time you're just like, oh, that, that's minus one. Right. Oh, okay. I like that. So you, you already, so you're ahead of the game with me on that. Oh, no, I still fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got like a C plus in that class. <laughs> well, that's because you never showed up to the class. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> I just knew at that time, all I needed to do was avoid any felony convictions. I was still going to get hired by the police department. <laughs> right. Focus, focus, Alvin, focus. So why go to class? All right, so we're on our way to Charlie Company. Okay, and, and again, I'm spending so much time on the ride there because it's a lot of things that happen in this ride. And not the back and forth with Harry and Eleanor, but also uh, Harry, again, it's typical, the hindsight thing. Remember we told you before, um, in cut work, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and everyone wants to tell you what your fuck-ups were. But that's kind of what Rourke wanted Harry there for, so that, he could help pick up apart what they did. And one of the things that Harry was obsessed with was the fact that the murderers didn't get the ticket, the pawn ticket from Meadows. And it was like, okay, why didn't, so we know he was tortured. He, we know he's got the high load. You want to tell me that he gave up the location of the pawn ticket, but didn't give him actually the ticket. So Harry kind of puts together. observation, Right. Well, he kind of puts together his own, theory that he didn't give up the pawn ticket and he did not give up the location the place was pawned that actually they must have had an inside man who must have got a, a access to the pawn sheets and again you the listeners just so you understand it's, it sounds self-explanatory but it, it isn't so the a pawn sheet if you can imagine in, in a local municipality I'm just going to use like uh, the, let's say Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and all the surrounding counties. They share a pawn database so that if you, the listener, get robbed and they want to actually pawn those particular items, the cops will then, or the detectives will get a list of all the items that were stolen. We will give it to the pawn shops to say, be on the lookout for these particular uh, items that were stolen in a robbery or uh, or some they were stolen somehow so this pawn sheet goes out to all the local municipalities so that they could then combat that particular crime how often would that come out phil do you remember well you know 
I can't remember because we digitized it. I want to say back in 92, I want to, I, I, I want to say optimistically every two weeks, but for some reason, I think once a month. Because I, I remember, I because I remember before they could actually, the pawn shop, before they could actually, quote unquote, write off on the item, they had to wait for the next cycle to come about to make sure that the, in, the item was not stolen. So either it was two weeks or a month. Uh, don't, listeners, don't hold me to that, but I don't think it was more than a month. Matter of fact, I know it was more than a month. So it wasn't like your daily 10-10 sheet with your stolen cars. It wasn't updated daily. No, I, no, I do not believe it was updated daily. And I think the reason why it went computerized is was because of that, 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 that gap in time, you know, from the time an uh, item is stolen, the time somebody put it in the system. So the pawn shops were complaining that it took too long and it was tied up too much of that money. The, matter of fact, I do remember the database originally, all the local pawn shops got together and with law enforcement, and they made this one particular database. Yes, it's a definite point of interest. Definitely. Well, Obama said it. Remember, Obama said that's how he got a Polaroid. Obama said, I, you know, I take a picture of these things, but no one comes around. <laughs> Obama was hot, you know. I do all this. Basically, I do all this goddamn work, and the police don't, don't uh, take advantage of it. So, question for you. Sure. Go ahead. Go. With Charlie Company mm-hmm. and the colonel's approach to it, because the book touches on how passionate he is about helping these vets. Right. Rehabilitate. Right. Do you think the reason he's so passionate about it is he's trying to make good on sins he committed during the war? Well, I actually don't know. And again, just to to for the listeners remember last podcast we said our father is a Vietnam vet and a cop. I think that would be a great question to ask him as he get caught up to speed on the book. So when we bring him in, maybe we can, you know, duck tail back around on that particular one. I would love to get his insight on that. So as a layman, I think so. Yeah. Uh, From, you know, uh, from the stories that you hear about the Vietnam war and what even the Colonel says during this chapter about how the boys, but you can see, you know, even to the day, you know, these young men and women go overseas, fight these wars and they come back. And they're, they're spat on, especially the Vietnam War. I mean, how many times we knew, how many times our father told him, told us, when you came back, you kind of hid your uniform. You, know, you didn't want anyone to know you went, went over yeah. there. They always called you the baby killer. Exactly. Like exactly. Yeah, people don't understand. It's like, well, the people you elected sent these kids over here and gave them permission to do a certain job. Right. And now you're going to give them hell for it right. when they come back. Well, before yeah, we, before we get with the colonel, one of the things I like that was said during the conversation with Eleanor and Bosch en route to Charlie Company was she says from the book, Harry, this is speculation on top of speculation. And Harry responds, that's what cops do. And, and that's true. You know, you we think of all these hypotheticals and speculations because you got to figure the crime out. You know, you, you, you say, OK, why did the person do this? Why did you do that? There's a lot of speculations. Like ninety nine percent of it doesn't come to fruition, but that one time, that one time it does pop, it pops. And the funny thing is, it's it may seem far fetched to a layman or a civilian, but we we live in a reality Mm -hmm. where far fetched is the norm. Exactly. It may sound crazy, like no way that person would do that. It's like, uh, nope. Way, way. (laughs) They did. So part of that, like. 
working a case and ironing out the nuggets is getting as far-fetched as possible because if you can think it, someone's already done it. Someone's done it, exactly. So they finally do, they pull up to the Charlie Company and there's a lot of nuggets in these these next couple of pages. One of the things is when they pull up is a white dusty pickup truck with an eagle outside of a large C painted on the driver's side door. And so I, I believe Harry's looking around and saying, huh, because no it, such thing as coincidence, right? We, we don't like coincidences. And then they, uh, one of the things that this particular portion of this chapter press upon again, as cops, we can go in, get a subpoena or get a warrant to get things done, but that slows things up. And just like Harry did with, Sharky doing the last chapter chapter, excuse me, as a good trained investigator, you have to learn the art of persuasion. Sometimes, you know, just don't go in yeah. there as with a, a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Now, sometimes you got to use a sledgehammer, but yeah. you know, once you do it, you can't go back. And in this particular, that can't be your normal practice. No, it can't be. Well, Hey, how many, how many cops did you know? I'm the police. Cause I said so motherfucker. Like, yeah, God. I mean, I mean, I mean, do we know? We know guys like that. We know guys yeah. who the guys that were picked on in high school and right. had a badge. Right, right. And I know that's weird for the listeners to hear cops say that, but believe it. If you think they're a dick, just imagine what we think. We have to work <laughs> with these guys all the time. So you only had to deal with them for a couple of minutes on the street. I got to sit in a car with this asshole for eight hours. The colonel comes in. And the colonel, you know, right off the bat, again, they recop. And, but he wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed because Bosch introduced himself in FBI. And he pretty much tells him, look, I work with you. I, co- I cooperate with you because I have to. But what I don't want you to do is mess up this program. What's going on pretty good here. And Bosch kind of massages a little bit. It even Eleanor said, look, we'll do everything. It'd be held very discreetly. And so he said, what can I help you with? And Bosch, again, because I looked over this, this particular portion when Bosch interacts with the colonel on the first time, because, again, in Bosch's head, everyone's a suspect. <laughs> so Bosch said, he said, well, we want to talk about metals. And he goes, well, what about them? He said, you getting some more trouble? And Bosch said, not anymore. He's like, what does that mean? Right. You, you know, that right there was Bosch's way to test to see the reaction from the colonel, see if he was possibly, again, in my opinion, was, well, was he know, involved? I didn't even think I didn't pick up on that till you just said that because you're always putting little um, feelers out there, right? To gauge whether or not someone did something. That's hats off to. That's why you're a detective, smart guy. Well, but it, I also think too the ahead. way that Bosch was able to disarm the colonel, exactly, establish that bond because they both were over in the jungle, and instantly right off the top, you're given a little bit more lenience because, hey, we both played in the mud together. Right. It's like if I met you for the first time, you said, yeah, I was a cop in this city. Be like, you know what? Doesn't matter what city you're in. You're a cop in the city. You and I right. speak the same language. Right. We've been through this battle together. Yeah. And so the, the colonel says, well, again, he, he kind of picks up on the fact, I know what I can give you and I, I know what I don't have to give you because Bosch and Eleanor asked for not only Meadows file, but any other inmates or, or participants or whatever they call them, who was here at the time Meadows was here. And that's when the colonel goes, I don't know if I would do that. And again, his, his, I understand, I picked up on it as, look, I don't want you to mess up my brand. And if you, totally. every, 
Right. Every time a crime happens and these guys go on for a better life, they would stop coming to my company if I'm just handing out their names. And again, Bosch used that, the art of persuasion. Look, you know, I can get this information. And OK, so listen, <laughs> we keep it real. So I got to keep it real. When someone cooperates, we cooperate. I'm I'm I, I bend over backwards. But if you're going to be that one guy, especially when you know. I'm going, I can get a warrant for that information. Then we're going to, you're going to make me go by the letter of law. I'm going to go by the letter of law on you too. So don't at the time when I execute the subpoena or the warrant or whatever writ that gives me authority to get the information I want, then don't then come to me and say, Oh, we're buddies. Nah, buddy. If I had to go through all this time and sit in front of the judge and write this effort and get back then in 92, Oh, can you again just remember the, the mindset of typing affidavit? Right, you didn't have but spell check just <laughs> came on the scene, I think. Did it? Or oh, no, 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 it Back didn't. Then, it was whiteout. It was whiteout. It was, I was gonna say it was whiteout yeah. because it, it, explain it, what whiteout is in case we have uh, right. We have some listeners. young, young. Well, whiteout is this uh, is this liquid that when you type on a typewriter, you literally type uh, take take a like a brush that has white. Um, like a paint on it, and you write over, you 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 white out the b- mistakes. So they call it a whiteout. But in my affidavits, my lieutenant would not accept whiteouts. I would, no, it's unprofessional. It's unpro- and, and plus, you never line it back up the right way. You anyway. never do. You know, and, oh. and and that's before I just became a detective when the Smith Coronas came out. Boy, I'm really dating myself. I explain what that is. Smith, Smith Corona was this one particular typewriter that you that had this probably three inch LED screen Sweet. that when you you type your words you can see them as you type them, and I remember buying one. Again, I thought it was the biggest best thing. But before I got that Smith Corona, I had the old pet um, typewriters where oh my god the old manual was and. You type really hard. It was just so. I say we that we are old, right? We are old. I say that to again get the mindset. You better learn the art of persuasion because you know. Also, too, you come back. It, this you are coming back. You might you might come back to this guy in the future. So why make an enemy? You know what's right. what's, the, what's the reason for making an enemy? So if you can make a ally, make an ally. And you know what? Also, too. It's not just you. You make it easier for the next time this guy interacts with a police officer. A lot of times, I think, again, some of these young guys don't understand. It's not that you're just interacting on your own behalf. You're also interacting for the next guy who meets the particular citizen and trying, you know, get some information. If you you make it easier for the next guy. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of our guys don't think like that. They go in with their uh, what's his name, Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, a tough guy. And yes, is, and I'm I'm with you. I'd rather. I don't want to say coax. I'd rather appeal to your generosity. Of course. Than, than lay my dick on the table and be like, I'm the alpha male. God damn, you're going to give me my information. And, you know, again, you just made a good point. And most people will, if you treat them with a modicum of respect, they will return that. They will return, yeah. especially because they want to help the police. They, they do. Uh, so if you, if you ask it, and, now again, some people just, hey, we're going to do this the hard way. Like one of the things I would always tell a guy if I'm going to search their car. Hey, hey dude, uh, can I search your car? The officer, uh, detective, don't take anything wrong with this, but uh, if you want to search my car, you got to get a warrant. Okay, no problem. 
And there was no hard feelings. I'll do my job. Unfortunately, yeah, it's going to take me three hours, and you're going to have to wait with me by, <laughs> while I do this. Uh, in handcuffs. Right, because I, I do believe I have the probable cause to get in there. And, and I, I, I hate using bluffs. Again, because I look on the other side, if I bluff and I fail, then it makes the next officer, the next law enforcement officer, job harder to deal with this individual. So I, I don't, never bluff. Right, don't bluff. I, I think I did once, and it didn't work out. And right. after that, it's like, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. If you got it, you got it. If you don't, right. you don't. You know, you know what it, I liked about the colonel? Is what's that? Like he, he acknowledged, like, out of all of his custodians, or whatever you call them, that if there was someone that was going to fall off, mm-hmm. it was Meadows. It's going to be metal. There was a certain level of sympathy there, right? And I think that helped crack that wall and made him more cooperative. Like he said, "Look, there's a line here I can't cross, right? But I'll get up to it as close as I can to help you out, right?" I, I agree. And so, as they got after they got the information, they got a list of metals files, and then they got a list of all the people who were there at the time Meadows was there. So then they, they started to leave. But as he was leaving, Bosch, again, always present, omnipresent, the cop, said, hey, uh, Colonel, um, you have any other vehicles? Yeah, I do. And he described the vehicles and one happened to be a Jeep. I, you know, remember, remember, remember Sharky described a Jeep and it was it's a white Jeep with a symbol on the side of it because and but the colonel didn't pick up on what Bosch was saying. And even when they left, um, Wish kind of said, well, did you want to press harder? And I said, not just yet. But now, it's start, again, uh, we, I look at Michael writing as a, pan, uh, like as, a, as a python, as this big-ass python that slowly wraps you up. In the, I hate snakes. I, <laughs> well, you in, just had to go there. Well, because you don't, you know, opposed to a quick strike and, you know, like a cobra, what I love about Michael's writing is I felt like a snake. You know, you start feeling, the, you know, you get pressed around the chest <laughs> because now investigatively you get, you're starting to get these leads. Like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Other Vietnam vets. And then as they leave, you know, with the best backup first, what you have is you have a Jeep, a white Jeep with a logo on the side. Those are the things Sharky, Sharky has said, you know, that to look out for. Yeah. You know, here's here's the thing too. This is where I worry about the whole Easter eggs thing. It you tell me if I cross the line. Okay, go, go, go ahead. Um oh, now I said um at this point too, it's starting to look like Meadows is being set up along with Harry Bosch. But I don't want to talk too much about it because of the potential Easter eggs. Wait, wait. There's a there's a correlation between Harry Bosch's file, right? Ele- Eleanor's um, knowledge of Harry Bosch's file, right? The link with Meadows, the G. It's it's almost like Meadows is being set up as the perfect fall guy, almost like right. The first rule of assassination is to kill the assassin. So if you're going to go to this great length to break into something, you're going to make sure there's a fall guy too, right? And I'm getting this feeling that this is the point where Harry is starting to realize that maybe Meadows is being set up. I, I don't think that's an Easter egg. 
because okay. right. that's where you are in this investigation, and I have no problem with that. That's that's not that's not giving up a spoiler to the listener because because we want to bring along the listeners with your thinking at the same time. And as a, as a cop, you're saying Meadows look like he's a perfect fall guy. But you know, it's funny too. Like the uh, when they uh, looked at the letter that Meadows wrote to Charlie Company, because each. Um, convict had to write a letter why to take me to the Charlie Company. It just reminded me one thing that I always got annoyed with, and I know it's wrong, but there's a certain pattern or tone that convicts would have when they want to tell you what they think you want to hear. And it's almost patronizing. It's right. like that convict talk. And I hated that because they are some awesome bullshitters, but it's hard to filter out what's actually sincere. And what's just the bullshit that they're telling me that I think, and what I've read or had read to me, uh, Charlie's, uh, I'm sorry, not Charlie, uh, Meadows' letter to Charlie Company, right. I got that feeling like this dude is just saying whatever he's got to say, all the right things to get out of the uh, prison well, to it, into this program. And it's interesting you said that because actually I picked up on Eleanor's lack of experience for expressing that doubt in front of the colonel. Because if you remember this chapter, the colonel then puts his glass down. He's, you know, he was really not paying too much attention to them. But the colonel pretty much goes back at her. She said, tacky, but it, it works. And he goes, I do believe it's work. And then he really goes into this nice speech about why he started this program. You know, where would these boys be were not for the war? You know, we could have had doctors, lawyers, plumbers, police officers, but they went into the war and they came back broken. Where would they be if not for the war? So he did believe into him. And, and he said, if Meadows fell back into the life that led him to prison, that's on him. But we have a good thing going here. So I thought that was her naivete to express that in front of the colonel. Because that's, you, 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 you're turning at his baby. You can tell he's very passionate about this program. Yeah, and that's what I was like. That passion that keeps like coming out from his pores just keeps saying to me, he must have did some really fucked up shit in Nam. Right. Like I said, I, I, you're, <laughs> you're trying to make something right. It right. seems like he's trying to make up for something. It's like there's people out there that really want to do good for folks. Yeah. But I find in those circumstances of him, he did something. And I know we'll never know, but right. it's just one of those things that in the back of my mind, like if I was here or Eleanor, I would. I wouldn't ask him because that's incredibly rude. But yeah. in the back of my mind, I'd be wondering what the hell did he actually do over there? Right. And that's where I would ask him what his MOS is. Uh, right. Right. Was MOS uh, military occupational specialty? Okay. Again. So they leave and they get back to LA. And one of the things that uh, Bosch holds out, or not holds out is the wrong word, but really appreciates the fresh air because he says goes back into goes back into the, the, the smog of L.A. And then um, him and Ellen are go, toward, go to a restaurant and have uh, lunch. Okay, all right. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this. Go, then, go, go, go. <laughs> all right, Phil. Where do they go have lunch? I what view do they have? An ocean? At the, I think it was, okay. it, was, it, wasn't it at the dock where he used to be a kid and used to fish oh, off the okay. pier? Yeah, but what do they see on the horizon? I missed that. What 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 was it? What did they? What did I missing? 
Catalina Island. Ah, Catalina Island. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ding, ding, ding. That, yes. <laughs> for you people at home, that's an Easter egg. That's Easter egg. Again. It's a major Easter egg. And one of the, th- I, uh, again, we keep saying it, but it, 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 it needs to be said. I cannot wait to interview Michael Connolly because that just shows the, the depth of his writing ability to keep again. This is the first book, third chapter, fourth chapter. Come on, man. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean, come up until one, two, like four or five books. Right. Like, like God, oh, that guy's, I, and then when yeah, you, I can't wait to have him in the studio. And then when it happens, you're like, wait a minute. I remember him writing about that way back in book one. You're like, oh yeah. my goodness, he was leaving these little breadcrumbs. Again, that just shows the brilliance of his writing. And again, why we, we keep saying it, why we like his style and why we're doing this podcast. Side note, you know he's friends with Stephen King now? Yeah, you said that last podcast. Yeah, that's crazy. I just keep, yeah, wow. Yeah, two geniuses. Crazy as shit, but geniuses. Right. Um, Harry and Eleanor then go back to the Bureau and they start running all the particular names that he got from the colonel of the d- different other prisoners. And we always, we know we don't like coincidence, cops. We hate coincidences. And Harry expresses that in the manner in which he whittles down particular people who can possibly be further um, investigative leads. And, and a couple of the things that stand out that. Metals was also, he was MP when uh, Saigon fell. And you can just imagine back then, MP at that time had special privileges and special accesses to different things. What happens is, again, when they get back to the federal building after lunch, Bosch and Eleanor starts working the phones, start working the computers, trying to get a criminal dossier on all the different other inmates who the colonel gave a list. Uh, and Bosch then contacts the um, VA um, St. Louis and again you find this in cop work people just want to help you because Michael even made note of this how the uh, lady on the phone stayed well past her time and she wanted to help um, Bosch out and again you it, it sounds not like a little cliche but you do get more with honey than vinegar you do yeah. and that's always if you end with the person Leaving a good, you never know, especially in cop work, who you're going to go back to. So don't burn a bridge if you don't have to. You know, don't burn a bridge again. Just because you can do something, I mean, you should do something. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think too many cop. No, I say too many. I think a significant number choose that route. They go too hard, too fast, and it's like, God damn, we do have to build public relations here, and you guys are screwing it all up. Correct. And so after. After they, they, wheedle, they whittle it down, they come up with two names that fit the bill. One, that, again, they were prisoners. Two, they actually met Meadows at the, at the, at the um, farm. I just called it a farm. Three, that they all had robbery experience. And those particular guys, uh, it was Fra- Art Franklin and Gene Delgado, fit the bill. And then... Um, Bosch says, let's go find Sharky. And, but he knew when he put Sharky up that Sharky was going to be gone. So first thing he does, he calls the uh, place where he dropped Sharky off. 
and the the, the same guy in the uh, chapter before the old crusty guy says him and his crew are gone <laughs> police officer <laughs> and, right and so then well we'll back up he calls the shelter the shelter said uh, sharky split then he called the hotel or motel and we described last podcast how the motel is just re- really seedy he was gone so they hit the street looking for sharky and or his crew and they were nowhere to be found yeah and you know as as we continue to i'd like the listeners if there's certain feelings that you're getting as the story starts to unfold there's anything hairs going up on your neck you think it's going a certain way please send an email a message through facebook or twitter instagram let us know your thoughts right so we can incorporate that into bring your theory to the front of the fold as well Right, and we do want to open up our podcast more and more to interaction, especially specifically chapter related. And it, we don't, again, we don't profess to be the best at this, and our insights are just ours. But if you had some other insights, I'd love to hear from you. And we would, after we read it, we would, if it's an insight worthwhile, we will make sure we mention it. The more eyes on the book, the better. Definitely. All right, so. We're looking for Sharky. Then what happens? And but, Eleanor, like, well, and El- well, then Eleanor's like, look, that's we can find Sharky again. Enough is enough. <laughs> what was good was he was Bosch. Like, I really want to find. She said, let's go to dinner. And Bosch, like, ooh, here, here we go. This is now. Here's your here's your check a bong check a bong moment <laughs> where he says to he said, well, I really want to find Sharky, but I really want her. <laughs> right. I mean, Sharky ain't going nowhere. Shaggy ain't going away. Yeah, I, I, we could fight him. We've been working all day. Right. Just kick it a little bit. So she offers dinner. Correct. Okay, let's go back to my place. Well, and, and then, again, the personal, they hit it right off just the aesthetics of her home, as, as Michael describes it, very sparse, no television. But there's a couple of things in there. She's definitely a jazz lover. She has um, a jazz, you know, collection that Bosch said he had in his house. So that's that's really cool. So now, not only, you know, is it a, is a physical uh, attraction. Now they hit it off. Also, it seems like they have the same type of uh, love for music. But you know, here's this interesting thing too that I related to Bosch, and I'm glad I'm not the only one. Is whenever I go into anybody's house, whether it's personal or professional. I'm doing an inventory of the house to get a better understanding of that person. Of course. And that's just, I don't know if it's a cop thing or a human thing. And I noticed that that's what Harry was doing. He took note of the artwork, like you said, the, um, and asked her about that painting too. Yeah. The Nighthawks. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was a really, he had made mention of it. And again, this is the, I think the second time he had mentioned about the darkness behind Eleanor's eyes. Yeah. You know, he picked up on it because she she expressed herself as being, you know, oh, so again, we're not to assume. Again, um, Edward Hopper is a famous artist and she has uh, a picture, excuse me, a portrait of the Nighthawks. And yeah. it's, a, it's a setting of a bar and there's one lone person at the end of the bar looking at a man and a woman at the other end of the bar. Harry looks at the picture. He d- describes him as the lone guy. And then Eleanor, when he, uh, he asked Eleanor about it, Eleanor says she describes herself as the lone guy. She says, I'm not, I'm not the girl because I don't have a guy. Right. And, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. At this moment, Bosch kind of asked her about 
Eleanor and Rourke. And she goes, Rourke? Blah. No way. <laughs> Why has that always seemed to stick out to you, this, the Eleanor Rourke thing? Well, because, you know, they, Michael, uh, see, I'm always, I'm now, I, when Michael Connolly writes something, I'm suspect of it. Because I'm, t- I'm getting tired of getting jabbed and getting punched, a sucker punched by yeah, Michael. But that's, you're never going to be ahead of that. So you might as well. I know. <laughs> and, but then Bosch really goes forward and says, well, you're married, Eleanor? You know, you know you're too beautiful for that. You know, so it blurted out. And so now, and she didn't recall at that particular observance. Slight advance, right. Yeah, of, 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 of Harry. Yeah. You know, and I also, too, I like how. Um, Eleanor is going deeper into Harry's background, like how did he get the house and mm-hmm. what's the story behind that? And he explained how he got the money from the TV show slash movie from the case right. of the nail file serial right. killer, which I thought was really interesting hearing about a serial killer and how it correlated to the doll maker, which mm-hmm. will come up in a future book. But it just took me back to my investigator school when I was in that course. It was shocking to me that to learn that at that time, it was, I guess it was 98, that we had four active serial killers in the area. But I never knew about it at right. all. Right. Because the, the, the homicide investigators were playing it close to the chest in this pursuit. So it just goes to show there's so much going on in the underworld that you have no clue about. And it was right. extremely humbling in this part of the show i mean the show excuse me this part of the book took me there you know it's like wow okay it's harry got his money in this nice house that he lives in mm-hmm. by uh having his case featured in a movie and it just it's very interesting that eleanor knew all about right his entire file with the um doll maker case that got him kicked out of robbery and as they're having this back and forth about it and she's reciting verbatim mm-hmm. the file mm-hmm. that got him kicked out of robbery homicide it made me think it's like is she indicative of what all the fbi agents are like or does she just have ocd and it's just that in depth maybe it's both and one of the things that she also as bosch says in the in this particular chapter he felt as though there was, she was asking him to, to expound on it because there was like, she was making a decision about him. Yeah. And I think the decision she was trying to make about him is, is he just a stone boat, a stone cold killer? And this is now finally, we're understanding what the dollmaker case is all about and not to re- recite verbatim what happened, but for the last three, cha- for the last three chapters, only thing we've been hearing dollmaker, dollmaker, how we, why he was suspended, you know, why or, or why was he downgraded from robbery, homicide? What did he do wrong? All those particular things. Yeah, and I, but that's going to be another great book to get into. Yeah, Concrete Blonde. Looking forward to that. That's whew, and, another one. And so then after, after the shooting with the doll maker, basically he shot someone, an unarmed man, because he felt as though the guy was reaching for a weapon. Hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Hindsight. He was reaching for a hairpiece, but this goes back to what you were saying in a, in a previous podcast, the Lewis and Clark found a witness who said she told Bosch that he wears uh, a toupee. Yeah. And based on that, and you know, we've already got, whoa, 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 hold on. Yeah. No, yeah. They, no, they planted that. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was okay. saying. Basically, she didn't they, say that. Right. They 
forced her to say that, and she agreed to testify that that's what he said. Right. But right. they had some leverage of some sort over her right. to convince her to do that. So that's bullshit. But thank God, Harry was the guy that got the nail file seal, mm-hmm. serial killer, which is when the reader goes into the details of that, it's really sick. And it goes back to like how childhood trauma can really affect you. Right. And we can have a whole nother segment on that. But Harry was loved by the city for mm-hmm. bringing a serial killer to justice. Right. So to, to get him locked up, he really needed to fuck up. He needed to do some like Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. Bill Cosby shit. Right. But someone above reached down and said, we're not going to do that to Harry. And it just, it again, goes to my disdain for people in power that abuse it because here it is. You're not going with what the witness presented to you. You're adding to it and literally falsifying a arrest affidavit just for the sake of an indictment. Well, and remember, let's, again, listeners, you should know by now, what gets Harry in trouble, if Harry was a cop who stayed in the family who translate what that means for the people well, if he so, stayed true to blue he right. put the department ahead of everybody right put the department ahead of and harry's it is what it is type of cop the chips fall as they may yep and which is how you should be which how you should be but there are a lot of people who aren't or who are weak and don't a lot of cops who are weak and who want to get along to go along and well, they also have a, a a misplaced sense of what is loyal. Right. You know, they think being loyal to the department supersedes being loyal to the law. Right. And they're and two that, very different Totally things. different things. Now, again, I I do, I'm not so naive, and, I, and you're not either, either, to understand there is some type of perception, and you do have to protect the, the men and women in blue. I'm, and I'm Absolutely. not I'm not going to go out there and just do a truck drive ride over ride over cops because what I used to do and what you used to do and what cops are doing now is very hard and very special. And one of the things that, you know, before you judge me, you know, walk in my shoes and if you walk into my shoes and then you come up with the same or different result, then I'll respect that. But well, see, now I'm going to go off on a tangent. Go, 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 because, go, because go. You, you open this up. Go. On a, um, so there's a difference between serving the greater good mm-hmm. and abusing your power. And Definitely. I'm going to give an example. So let's say you and your mom were walking down the street Christmas shopping just because it's relevant. And some punks come up with a pistol and decide to rob your mom. Right. And they break her orbital bone by pistol whipping her. Right. Your mom loses an eye. Right. And I, this is no, this is, this actually happened. Go. And I find the guy in a pursuit. So in doing so, he resists a little bit, but he makes a stop to the hospital Mm -hmm. before he goes downtown. I don't think there's an American in this country that would have a problem that I sent that fucker to the hospital before he went to jail. Well, now that's different. Go ahead. Then IED trumping up something and saying, well, you're going outside the lines a little bit and not being loyal to the family, so we're going to fuck you. There's a difference. Definitely. That's where I have a problem. I have no problems with cops doing whatever they have to do to achieve the mission, and the mission is to make sure we all go home and the public is safe. And it's not going to be pretty, and it's not going to be clean doing that. And cops need to understand 
in order to build that trust, you have to understand we have to achieve the mission. And it's not always going to be popular and need to be on CNN. But let's not abuse our power either. Well, what did what someone says? Everyone loves how sausage tastes, but no one wants to know how CI is made. Right. And you're absolutely right. And But you are going to have those people who believe uh, that a murderer could be rehabilitated and blah, 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 blah. Now, I'm, I'm not to go down that road too much, but I do think a crime of passion is different than a crime of profit. You know, it's something you come home and you see your child being molested by the neighbor and you go off and boom, something happens and opposed to something that's premeditated and then you, you know, you plan out and stalk them down and then you, you know, to commit that type of crime for, for profit. I'm, I think that any average citizen will draw a line on those two things. Case in point, you know, how many times do you see it where uh, a father goes to jail or gets arrested because just for that same scenario, he confronts a, a, a molester and he beats the shit out of that molester. Um, so I think that guy will get, should get off. I think, well, think he should get, to get the hell off on that. Just like as it relates to this book, the guys that went into this tunnel, they had a certain calculus that they worked in. There's an acceptable amount of collateral damage that was going to be acceptable for them. So let me translate that what that means to the, the public. So these motherfuckers went in to the, do this job and they said, if we got to kill civilians to get out and get free, I'm cool with that. Right. So those are the guys I have no problems crushing. Well, at all. it gets to that point with the few good men where where Jack Nicholson's, you know, <laughs> say, grab a rifle, get right, on a wall. Until, right. Until you do that, I'd right. rather you just say thank you. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. Uh, but, yeah, you know, but, but, but to digress, the what, reason Harry got, uh, reason Harry's not liked about by the ID, and the person who reached down was... Um, or, yet, no, yeah, you do. They didn't say who who backed off, did they? It, did they infer it was Irving? Didn't they infer it was no, Irving? They just said it was someone above. So well, I'm, took, I'm looking at the office. well, it could we, Irving, yeah, it could have been the chief's office. Yeah, okay, because, because there's a lot of people because Harry was beloved at that point by right. the city and department. It could have even been the mayor. Because didn't at that time didn't um, Clark say, yeah, you, he's not the glory boy he was before. No one's going to back us, make us back off on him this, this time. time. Right, right, but see that it, we don't know who that could be. Right, so again, the reason I brought that up because I want the listeners to understand: Harry is not just fighting the, the the criminal; he's fighting his own department at the same time, and it's because they have this vendetta against him because he's a wildcat, he's a wild card. You don't he, he will call it uh, strikes and balls; he will not color the lines, even though I think is wrong. He does. How uh, can I say without giving spoilers? I don't think Harry's too above um, street justice. I mean, look what he did. <laughs> look what he did oh, with the guy. Yeah. Well, no, he just did it in last chapter with the, with the guy called Squint Eyes. You know, technically, Eleanor was right. We should have locked the guy up and, you know, the guy with the, the, the street well, whore. Well, well, I mean, if you want to go by the book, you want to go by the book, no, right? Now, no, no, I agree no, with Harry did. No. I agree with Harry did. I do agree with Harry did 100%. But there's those who will say, well, that guy deserves, he, he should not have been, a kicked in the you ass and in, in cross eyes. Or, or Here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
you can't go 100% by the book because then you might as well just get robots and artificial intelligence. What right. makes police work, I think, effective is a police officer's good ability to use his discretion. Right. So that's what I think makes a good cop. So you can't always go by the book. The rules are there, like you always say, as tools right. for given application you don't right. always have to use it just because it's there right so it and that goes back to what's by the book does the book say you have to lock up everyone or do no. you have a certain amount of discretion so before you can say i always go by the book well what does that mean exactly right because there's no set rules where everyone has to go to if everyone had to go to jail everyone would always have speeding tickets or some kind of moving violation every time they get behind the wheel Oh well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the one of the, one of the series that we're going to get into is the wire. And I remember the uh, chief at the time when he was on the outs with the mayor. He he put his hand on the stack of their their orders, their their general orders. He said, "In these stacks, someone always did something wrong. Yeah. It's my job to find what they did wrong." <laughs> so right. I get what your point. Your points made. After that, you know, they eat dinner. Some you know some spaghetti. She makes sauce and spaghetti. Model. She describes her passion for cooking because Correct. helps her decompress. And it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right. And then I think after, after they finish eating, he helps clean the kitchen. And then here's your favorite drum roll. You know, as we go through this, you are, you're, you're such a romantic. I mean, I'm just picking up on it because you've been waiting for this, the, this to happen. So I'll let you go into what happens next. Oh, okay. So... As they're cleaning, they both dry their hands on the same <laughs> towel. It's like, oh, wait a minute. And then there's that slight touch. And a slight touch goes to a closer space between each other. Then the space turns to an embrace. And embrace leads to a kiss. And then, thank God, they finally hooked up. Because <laughs> they kiss. He says, I want to stay. She says, I want you to stay. And I'm like, this is cool. But then... Michael Connolly turns everything upside down and instantly we're taken to Sharky and the boys right. smoking menthols dipped in PCP. And I'm like, what the fuck? I don't even get any details with the well, stuff well, in the kitchen. Well, before... Um, so right. now... We're back Sharky and the boys. So Sharky and the boys are setting up again for on a hunt. But this time, they can't go back to the 7-Eleven where they picked up the uh, individual who, who um, they broke the nose with, with Mojo. Was it which one of the two broke the guy's nose? I think it was Mojo. That was it Mojo that yeah, broke his nose? But now they're on the strip where they actually are not too far from what they call back in the peep show of uh, all, all male peep show where you can go in and you know, see naked men. So it's definitely geared towards the homosexual community. And that's their prey. And they're getting deeper into a more dangerous part of town, more shadier part. Right. Well, less the, affluent. When Sharky then notes that they been hitting the pe- they've been hitting the dips too much. They've they've been you know you know doing dippers. Explain what the dips is. Would you, you you said it earlier? You know, cigarettes dipped in PCP. Yep. So they usually a menthol. Right. So they that cool sensation. Mm-hmm. So you know, Sharky tries to get out of. The fact of why he always has to be the one as the bait. And I think one of them goes, huh, isn't that funny? 
we use a shark as a bait. <laughs> That's a typical stoner talk, man. Right. And so they he said, you know, you know, and Sharky said, well, I do want to go back. Let's go back to that other place so we can pick the meat opposed to the meat pick. And I said, no way, dude. That guy might, the cops might be sitting up on a place just like we did. Like, okay. Right. Actually sitting in the same parking lot. Correct. And so Sharky gets on the strip and they yell, you know, a BMW or better. Is he an asshole I know? So this guy drives up in his Grand Am, and the, when the guy drives up, you know, he puts his arm over the shoulder over, over, on a steering wheel and glitters a, a Rolex Presidential. I'm like, ooh, this this is a nice wheel. We can get at least three K for that. All right, we can get three K. That's a thousand. That's a thousand each. So yep. uh, then they, the gentleman, they get he gets in the car with Sharky and he goes, "Hey, do you know me? Do I know you? You ever seen me before?" And Sharky goes, "No, no." And so then the guy runs a red light. No, no, no. Hold on. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You're going too far. Go for it. Before that, they they have this courting thing, you know, which. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go You do that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, you do that. For the gay talk, it's like, hey, you know, are you into baseball? Yeah, I'm into baseball. Are you pitching or catching? He's like, I always pitch and I bought my own glove. So it's like, hey, he's telling Sharky, I'm going to give it to you. Through anal sex, and I'm gonna wear a condom, so there you don't have anything to worry about. And right? It, it, Sharky's like, well, you know, I usually go a hundred. He's like, look, I got fifty. And Sharky's like, well, that's cool. It's like, so there they are bargaining back and forth. Right. And they go in a car, and Sharky's, you know, he's listening up for his guys riding behind him. He hears the the motorcycles behind him, so he feels comfortable. He's like, all right, my boys are following me. We're gonna roll this dude. This will be cool. Then, like you said. They get to a light. He still hears his boys revving the motorcycle. He's like, man, they need to chill out with that. Right. Then the guy punches it and runs the red light. Right. And I'm like, whoa. Well, Sharky said the same. Hey, what's that all about? I said, I I just can't wait to get with you. Yeah, I want to be alone. I want to to be alone. And at that point, Sharky looks behind and he notices guys are gone. Right. And this guy keeps asking him, hey, you sure we don't know each other? And that's when I was realized. Sharky's in trouble. Well, I, I think I think Sharky did know he was in trouble because a bead of sweat started forming on his head, and then he's thinking, yeah. "Well, maybe I can take this guy by myself." Yeah. And so then, this, this, as he called him Mr. Rolex, Mr. Rolex, they pulled to. He said, "I have a place at the Hollywood Bowl. I have access to that, so we just got to you know walk through this tunnel right here." And so they pulled to the side, and Sharky said, "Well, either I take him or I'm going to run." As they're walking, uh, the gentleman puts his hand on 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 Sharky's shoulder as Michael. Michael called it a fatherly, as fatherly uh, embrace on his show, on his neck, and he felt the the Rolex, the, the metal of the Rolex, and he said, "Are you sure you don't know me, Sharky?" And Sharky said, "No, man." And then he thought to himself, "I don't remember giving him my name." And then Michael ends the chapter. <laughs> That's what I was like. Okay, shit just got real. <laughs> That's what I was like. That's when I fell in love with Michael Conley. Okay. Okay, so we're going to transition into our Everyone Counts But No One Counts moment. And I think the theme of this particular 
chapter, I guess the everyone counts but no one counts moment. Colonel Scales for me is the everyone counts but no one counts moment. Um, he exhibited such uh, fervor for, as he called it, my boys, his boys, and his mission and what he was doing, trying to bring back um, wounded veterans. He has said a couple of times, you know, but for this war, where would these young men be? But for these wars, we could have had doctors, lawyers, plumbers, police officers, but for this war. So in this particular chapter, our everyone counts or no one counts moment or person would be Colonel Scales. Well, that does it for this episode of the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. Thank you for joining us. And most of all, we appreciate your time and patience as we, patience as we grow and hopefully get better. So continue checking us out on Apple, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for subscribing to the channels and your, most of all, your feedback. Next episode, we will continue to take a deep dive into the Black Echo, part five, Thursday, May 24th. So we'll be 10-7 for the remainder. Bye.